welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision, following the one that had already appeared to me. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa, in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai River. Then he said, I am here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. The two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek Empire. The four prominent horns that replace the one large horn show that the Greek Empire will break into four kingdoms, but none as great as the first. Daniel, chapter 8, verses 1 through 2, and 19 through 22, the New Living Translation. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 15 through 22. I'm Victoria Kay on Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. Today, we are continuing our discussion on how we can have confidence that the Bible is truly the Word of God with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D.? I understand that today you would like to share a personal story as a way of helping people to understand why studying questions about Christianity and the Bible became so important to you personally. Well, just about everybody that knows me knows that I graduated from the military academy, which is usually referred to as West Point. And I think just about anybody who knows anything about West Point, about the military academy, knows that your first year there is pretty tough, and the last three aren't necessarily easy in and of themselves. But nevertheless, by the time you get to become a first-classman, or we used to call ourselves firsties, and that would be a senior at a regular college, by the time you get to become a firstie, you've been through a lot. You've endured the first year and the next two. And by that time, you're starting to look forward to graduation. But you also have a certain amount of self-confidence. 
because you have been through three tough years and you're pretty sure at this point that you are going to graduate, whereas earlier in your West Point career, you may have had some questions. But by now, you think you're going to graduate and you know you're getting ready to be commissioned in the Army. It would be fair to say that a lot of us were filled with some vim and vigor. And as we old grads like to say, we were at West Point when the giants roamed the earth. I'd been on the rifle team all four years while I was at West Point. And in my last year, I was having a conversation with what we called the OIC, the officer in charge, more or less the military officer who was the sponsor of the rifle team. These officers typically had spent 8 to 15 years in the military. They were senior captains or majors. In other words, they knew a lot about the environment into which we were going to be going. Of course, as first-classmen getting ready to enter the Army, we would ask them questions about their lives, about the decisions, about what they had done. So I was talking to the OIC one day, and I asked him, I said, Sir, when you decided to go to graduate school, what subject did you decide to study? So he gave me sort of a funny little look, and then he said, Well, let me ask you a question. What are you studying now? And I said, Well, I was an engineering major. They actually were called areas of concentration, not a traditional college major. But I said, well, sir, I'm studying engineering. He said, okay, good. And he said, and you did that because you think that will be of benefit to your future career in the Army. And I said, well, yes, sir, I did. So he said, well, when I went to graduate school, I decided to study philosophy. And he watched my reaction. And he could tell from my reaction that I was not overly impressed with the fact that he had chosen to study philosophy. So he said to me, look, as an engineer, he said, you have a very practical mind. Obviously, you're interested in very practical questions. He said, so I assume you're wondering why, when I could get the Army to pay for me to go to graduate school for two years, why in the world would I pick something as impractical as the study of philosophy? Well, of course, he was an officer. I was a cadet. I didn't want to say anything that would be disrespectful. So I said, well, sir, you know, everybody has to make their own decisions. Some sort of weak answer like that. And he just laughed and he said, look, before I went to graduate school and I thought about what I wanted to study, I began to realize that in this life, there are a lot of things that you can get other people to do for you. There are a lot of things you're going to come across that you can pay others to do for you. He said they can repair your car, they can build you a house, they can provide your medicine and health care. He said most things that you're going to need in this life, someone else can do it for you, even if you have to pay them for it. He said, but I realized as I was thinking about going to graduate school that there are some questions in life that you can only answer for yourself. So I decided to study those questions when I went to graduate school. Well, needless to say, that observation immediately made me realize that whereas I thought I was the smartest person in the conversation, I quickly realized that he was by a considerable margin. One of the biggest reasons for the past 30 plus years, I've tried to spend time studying the Bible, things about the Bible, the commentaries, and the criticisms of the Bible is because I think that Major's observations were absolutely correct. There are some questions in life that everyone must just answer for themselves. Well, that was a little longer than the greetings we've heard in the past, but I think it makes an important point. There are some questions that everyone must answer for themselves. It calls to mind Jesus' question to his disciples in Matthew 16, verse 15, 
and the other synoptic gospels. But who do you say that I am? At one point in all our lives, we are all going to have to answer that question. That gives us a lot to think about. So why don't we jump right into our main topic today? Today you want to give us two particularly compelling examples of prophecies from Scripture that were both given a couple of hundred years ahead of time, but that we now know were fulfilled in precisely the way the prophet predicted. And these examples help demonstrate the fact that the Bible is the Word of God, because a fulfilled prophecy helps show that the Bible has supernatural qualities. And both of these prophecies are from the Old Testament, right? Right. The first prophecy that we want to talk about is from the book of Daniel, and it's actually found in a few different places within the book of Daniel, specifically in chapters 2, 7, and 8. In our opening scriptures, we heard the part of the prophecy that's from chapter 8. The second prophecy is from the book of Isaiah, and parts of it are found in chapters 44 and chapter 45. And a little later in our show, we're going to hear that prophecy from Isaiah from portions of both of those chapters. In some ways, the prophecy from Isaiah is even more amazing than the prophecy from Daniel, if that's possible. Because while the Daniel prophecy concerns empires and events, major events, the Isaiah prophecy actually includes the name of a specific person, and he was predicted to do something almost 200 years before he did it. That sounds both amazing and interesting. Well, I think it is. So let's start with the prophecy from Daniel. Now, there is some debate among scholars, but even a lot of the Bible critics will acknowledge that Daniel lived in the 6th century before Christ. He was probably born somewhere between 620 and 615 B.C. Daniel lived a good long life, and most commentators think that he probably died somewhere after 530 B.C. Now, even though Daniel was a Jew, he lived in Babylon, which is located in modern-day Iraq. He had been taken to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jerusalem and had carried off a large number of captives that were from the upper levels of Jewish society. Now, even though Daniel was part of the captured Jews, he actually became a very prominent member of the Babylonian court, and this is back in the time when Babylon was the supreme power in the Mideast. One of the big reasons that Daniel rose within the Babylonian power hierarchy was because early in his stay in Babylon, Daniel had provided an interpretation of a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. Nebuchadnezzar had had this dream, it was greatly disturbing to him, and he had actually asked his wise men and astrologers to interpret the dream. None could, but one of his wise men said, well, there was a boy among the Hebrew captives who could be able to interpret dreams. So they went and fetched Daniel, and he provided the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the thing that made interpreting the dream so hard was that Nebuchadnezzar did not want to tell anybody the contents of the dream. He wanted the interpreter to first tell him the contents of his own dream so that Nebuchadnezzar could be assured that the interpreter was actually giving him the correct interpretation. So let's hear a little section from chapter 2 of the book of Daniel that was the first presentation of this part of the prophecy. The head of this image was of fine gold its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Daniel, chapter 2, 
verses 32 through 33. Well, what Nebuchadnezzar had seen in his dream was the image of a huge statue. But this huge statue, rather than being just composed of one single material, was actually composed from four or five, if you want to count the feet of iron and clay as two different materials. Well, Daniel explained to Nebuchadnezzar that these various materials that went down the length of the statue actually represented different empires. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that he was the head of gold and that the head of gold would represent the Babylonian Empire. And while at this time he did not reveal to Nebuchadnezzar who the additional empires would be, we now know from history that the empires represented by the chest of silver, middle of bronze, legs of iron, we now know that those empires were, in order, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. So Daniel survived long enough to see the Babylonian Empire fall to the combination of the Medes and the Persians because history tells us that Cyrus conquered Babylon in 539 BC. And remarkably enough, Daniel also became an important counselor to the new Persian rulers. Yep, absolutely. Daniel lived to see actually some of his own prophecies coming true. And even after the Medes and Persians had conquered Babylon, and Daniel continued to be an important court official during the reign of the Medes and Persians, His life of prophecy did not end when Babylon fell. In fact, during the time that the Medes and Persians were in charge, Daniel made several more prophecies that amplified his original prophecy, and these new prophecies added a number of specific, very significant details about the coming empires. For instance, as we heard in the chapter 8 opening scripture, one of the details that these succeeding visions told Daniel was that the empire that would follow the Medo-Persian Empire was the Greek Empire. Now, remember that Daniel was prophesying this before 539 B.C. At that point in history, the notion that the Greeks would one day become a continent-spanning empire was ridiculous. Greece wasn't even a country. It was just a collection of minor warring city-states a continent away. Greece wouldn't be unified until almost 200 years after this time under Philip of Macedon. And it was only then that it began to pose a real threat to the Persians. Well, Daniel's prophecy that Greek would become the third dominant empire finally came true when Philip's son, Alexander the Great, actually did cross into the territory of the Medo-Persians and defeated them in the last half of the 4th century BC. So over 200 years had elapsed between the time that Daniel called for the Greeks to become a world empire and it actually occurring. But even beyond just predicting the name of the empire that would follow the Medes and the Persians, Daniel actually provided additional details. For instance, the prophecy said that Alexander would not leave an heir to take over the empire after he died, and Alexander didn't. Notice that the prophecy said that the empire would be split into four parts, and it did. When Alexander died, he did not have a definitive successor, And so his huge empire that spanned portions of Europe and the Middle East was split among four of his generals. So this kind of specificity in prediction and in forecasting in prophecy is absolutely unheard of and just inconceivable that a human being without supernatural inspiration could ever have made such detailed and accurate prophecies. That's for sure. People today are shocked if someone can tell whether financial markets will be up or down next year or who will be the final teams in major sporting events. And let's not get started on the weather predictions. Exactly. 
So let's move on to another Old Testament prophet, Isaiah. And this prophecy that we're going to be concerned with today concerns a great Persian king named Cyrus. In chapter 44 and chapter 45 of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah predicted that Cyrus, who again was going to be a Persian king, would order that the primary Jewish temple in Jerusalem would be rebuilt. Now understand that Isaiah lived 100 years before Daniel, in the last half of the 8th century B.C. And at that particular time, the Jerusalem temple was still standing, and it was magnificent. Even more amazing to the people of his time when Isaiah uttered his prophecy was that Isaiah had just prophesied that an invading army of Assyrians who had besieged the capital of Jerusalem would be defeated without them ever shooting a single arrow into the city. That, in fact, had happened. God had miraculously delivered Jerusalem, and the Assyrians returned to their homeland, never having really assaulted Jerusalem. So the people of Jerusalem, when Isaiah told them that there would come a time when the temple would have to be rebuilt, would have thought him to be very close to literally crazy. So let's listen to a fairly lengthy section of the book of Isaiah. This is from the end of chapter 44 and the beginning of chapter 45, so we can see some of the details of this remarkable prophecy. And again, this comes from the Crystal Sea Audio Library of Scripture. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turn wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, Be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple, Your foundation shall be laid. This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose right hand he will empower. Before him, mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. Their fortress gates will be opened, never to shut again. This is what the Lord says. I will go before you, Cyrus, and level the mountains. I will smash down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. And I will give you treasures hidden in the darkness, secret riches. I will do this so you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, the one who calls you by name. Isaiah, chapter 44, verses 24 through 28, and chapter 45, verses 1 through 3, the New Living Translation. Okay, let's now think about that prophecy and the things that would have to occur in order for that prophecy to come true. First, in order to need to be rebuilt, the temple in Jerusalem would have to be destroyed. Well, since the temple was the holiest building in Jerusalem, for the temple to be destroyed, the entire city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. Second, if Jerusalem were conquered and destroyed, why in the world would an invading army that had just destroyed a city and its most magnificent building 
someday order that that city and temple would be rebuilt in accordance with the statement in the prophecy. Understand that in Isaiah's day, when nations went to war in the Middle East against one another, the populations did not view the war as just being between the people. They viewed the war as being between the gods of each of the peoples. So if one nation conquered another nation, the peoples viewed that the conquered nation's god had been defeated by the stronger nation's god. So why in the world would a conquering nation with a stronger god ever order that a temple, in effect, to a weaker and lesser god be rebuilt? So the thought of a city being conquered, the temple being destroyed, and someday the conquerors ordering that the temple and city be rebuilt would have just been completely contrary to the ordinary notions of the day. And finally, when Isaiah used the name Cyrus, that would have puzzled the people. Why? Well, the people knew that Cyrus was not a Hebrew name or a Jewish name. The dominant power of the time was the Assyrians. They knew that Cyrus was not an Assyrian name. They knew that Cyrus was not an Egyptian name. Egypt was one of the other two dominant powers in the region at the time. And the people would have known that Cyrus was a name probably associated with the Persians, but the Persians at this point in Middle East history were not a power. In fact, they would have been considered somewhat of a backwater. So the prophecy that Isaiah was giving them just contained a huge number of incredible elements, but nevertheless, that's what the Lord had told Isaiah would happen. So, for Isaiah to be right, an entire sequence of unforeseeable events had to take place. Jerusalem would have had to be conquered by a power other than the Assyrians or the Egyptians. The conqueror would have to be Persian or in turn conquered by the Persians, and most improbably, a Persian emperor would have to be motivated to rebuild a temple to a god who had been unwilling or unable to protect his own people. The whole sequence would have been fantastic to Isaiah's listeners, but that's exactly what happened. Precisely. The prophecy unfolded in real history exactly the way Isaiah had foretold. Jerusalem was in fact conquered by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were ultimately conquered by the Persians, and the king of the Persian army that conquered Babylon was named Cyrus. Though we can note that it wasn't just the Persians alone who conquered Babylon, as we saw earlier from the prophecies in Daniel, it was an alliance of the Medes and the Persians It's just that the Medo-Persian alliance was led by the Persian side because Cyrus was the king of the Persians. And, after Cyrus conquered the Babylonians, he began to reverse some of the order, some of the devastation that had been wrought by the Babylonians. And as part of his pacification program, Cyrus had an interest in trying to build an empire, which meant he wanted to pacify and stabilize the conquered nations. As part of his pacification and stabilization program, Cyrus did, in fact, as the prophecy said, order that Jerusalem and the Jerusalem temple be rebuilt. Now, as remarkable as all that is, let's remember a few more very important facts. First, Isaiah was prophesying before Daniel, so the completion of his prophecy would have been close to 300 years in the future. Second, in the prophecy, Isaiah basically quoting the Lord says, They shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, Be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple, Your foundation shall be laid. 
Historically, the way that the Medes and the Persians actually conquered Babylon, Babylon was an immensely fortified city of that day. It was considered unconquerable, which was one of the reasons that the Babylonians never worried about themselves actually being conquered. They had walls in their city that were so wide that it was said that a chariot could ride around on the top of the walls, and the walls were 100 feet high. So Babylon as a city was considered impregnable. But what Babylon had was a river that flowed under the walls in order to provide water for the city in case an invading army attempted to conquer Babylon. Well, the way the Medes and the Persians got into the city was that they actually dammed the river upstream, blocking the flow. So when the flow of the river abated, it was dry in the riverbed and the Medes and the Persians were able to march under the walls while the Babylonians were conducting this immense public celebration, and when they marched under the walls, they were basically able to conquer the city, never having had to breach the walls. Anyone who is interested in this subject should really do a little bit more research, because there are a number of other remarkable details contained in this prophecy, including the fact that the gates were made of bronze, that Babylon, once it was destroyed, was never rebuilt, the number of details that were provided in the prophecy and that were ultimately fulfilled in the historical record that we have is just absolutely amazing. Again, these are details provided for a very specific historical episode that wouldn't occur for 300 years. There's no way any human being or group of human beings could have come up with that level of specificity. So again, gives us another example of the amazing prophetic precision of the Bible and therefore that the Bible contains divine fingerprints of its supernatural origin. Well, those are remarkable examples, and they do help illustrate that there has to be a supernatural mind at work who guided the human authors of the Bible. Now, sounds to me like a good time for a prayer. Today's prayer comes from another one of Crystal C's offerings, and it's a prayer of corporate confession for all the times we haven't listened attentively to and learned from the Word of God. Prayer of Corporate Confession Father, perfect in justice, holy in all ways, we stand before you to declare that we know you are a great, powerful, and just God. Before time began marking the rise, decline, and coming renewal of creation, you established the laws to govern all seasons and creatures. Your laws are perfect because you are perfect. Lord, we acknowledge today that we have sinned and fallen short of your expectations. We know that we have done this of our own volition that our transgressions are not caused by anything that you have done or failed to do. As you forgive us, help us to freely forgive those who offend us when they ask for pardon. Let us embrace our brothers and sisters with repentant hearts as readily as you embrace us. We can only do so by knowing the gracious love that you brought to us when Christ came and died for us. He tore apart the veil between your people and you, sent the Spirit to refresh our souls, and so it is in his precious name that we ask for mercy, pardon, and a readiness to serve you. Amen. Amen. 
We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.